given that it's Easter. Uh, we're starting a new series, we've called it E4, which uh, any of you have got um, free, free sat or what's the other, the other free TV or Sky or whatever it might be. There's a channel called E4, but uh, there's something else that we want to think about, which is uh, the idea of uh, four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, And they give us, each of us, different accounts. The first three Gospels are often called the Synoptic Gospels, which means they give a synopsis, an overview, a portrayal of the life of Jesus. They were the three Gospels that were written earlier on, following the resurrection of Jesus. They, they follow similar patterns. They cover similar events. And then we have, finally, the Gospel of John, which is a, more of a spiritual perspective. It deals a lot more with what he said. Um, and yet, at the same time, they are both, they are all four um, events, stories, portrayals, good news accounts uh, of the message of Jesus' life here uh, on this earth. What I thought would be helpful for us to do, given that we come round to Easter every year and we cover the Easter story every year, I thought well, maybe it would be interesting if we, we just did four, uh, four weeks uh, and we looked at something which was unique to a particular gospel. What's unique in Matthew? What's unique in Mark and Luke and John? Um, there's nothing, therefore, there's nothing that's going to be, if you like, chronological. We're not, because it's Easter Sunday, the resurrection, we, we're obviously starting at the back end of the Easter account. Uh, it's not going to be chronological, it's just taking a brief moment to think about something unique in each of the Gospels. That's what we're doing this afternoon um, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew. Called this afternoon the conspiracy. He came with a message of peace. He championed the case of the weak and the oppressed. He liberated his people and he died a martyr to his cause. He actually died on the 30th of January, 1948. His name was Mahatma Gandhi. He fulfilled all of those criteria. However, I I want to suggest that in 2,000 years' time, if we're still around and Jesus hasn't returned in 2,000 years' time, But if we're still around in 2,000 years' time, I want to suggest that it would take a huge amount of historical digging to find out about Mahatma Gandhi with all of the information that we're managing to preserve electronically. I reckon in 2,000 years' time, you will be able to find out about it. It won't quite be the archaeological discoveries that we have to make of something 2,000 years ago from here. But I want to suggest this, that Mahatma Gandhi, in 2,000 years' time, will be a pretty much forgotten character as far as this world is concerned. He came with a message of peace. He championed the case of the weak and the oppressed. He liberated his people 
and he died a martyr to his cause. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) And the amazing thing is, it is his death which actually gives us the description of 1948 for the death of Gandhi. That's how significant Jesus is. Not only is he known worldwide, across the whole of this world pretty much, not only as he continues to change the life of millions of people, but he actually intersects the whole of the history of this world in the descriptions that we use, in the way that we think about this world. Jesus remains central to our thinking. Jesus remains central to world history. Jesus continues to be the one figure in history who is engaging and changing the lives of people on an ongoing basis. Now, whether you agree with Jesus, whether you agree with the message that he came and which we proclaim as a church, I I understand that, that we might not all agree, but at least I want to start from a point this afternoon where we recognize the significance of Jesus. He is an undeniable character in terms of his uniqueness in the history of this world. The resurrection of Jesus, as we spend time looking at this afternoon, is the enduring claim which makes him the figure of history. The fact that the claim is made, the fact that the reason that he is remembered is not because of his peaceful revolution. It's not because of his abhorrent and significant death. It's the fact that we continue to claim 2,000 years later that the Jesus who died did not stay dead, but rose again. He, he defeated death. That's a fr- it sounds really Christian-y, that, doesn't it? The idea of defeating death. It's a phrase which is often used in church. But if we just stop and think about that phrase for a minute, we think of the idea as, of death. We can't help but think of the idea as being something which finally defeats us against all of our desires. There's been a few interesting programs on recently about um, diets. Some people with fascinating diets. Um, A guy who who, um, eats a pure paleo diet, one guy I was watching on TV, uh, to the extent that he doesn't cook anything, uh, including the animals that he eats. Uh, We'll stop there. We'll just not go any further. Um, And his desire is that he'll live to, he reckons, around about 150. That's his desire with the way trends in terms of how we're living are developing. And yet, even for all of that, I'm not sure he will live 150. He'll probably need worming regularly. But um, even if he does live to 150, death will finally defeat him. And yet Jesus upon dying, then defeated death. Jesus 
uh, won against the one thing that once it's got us, we can't beat. You see what the significance of that phrase, defeated death, means. We are defeated by death, and yet Jesus succumbed to death and then defeated it back. Some of you might be into, um, into boxing or UFC or something like that. And on a few occasions, you see somebody go down, and it looks like he's absolutely had it, and then somehow he gets back up, and he engages, and he wins the bout, he wins the fight. Against all odds. In human terms, the, the odds of defeating death are impossible to bet against, aren't they? None of us will defeat it, and yet Jesus did. That simple claim continues to be the one reason which makes Jesus significant and which the church continues to proclaim and why he continues to be remembered today. Conspiracy. If you watch National Geographic Channel or Discovery Channel, or if you read Dan Brown or any of the other Dan Brown wannabes, what we continually have uh, portrayed for us is the idea of some sort of conspiracy, a religious conspiracy, uh, the way a story is built up, a conspiracy which has grown and developed and we have all of the uh, interesting things that are thrown up. Uh, the Bible has been adjusted over the years and all of that kind of thing. Uh, if, you, if you talk to any sensible scholar, you would find that actually those, those arguments are pretty feeble. Uh, but we won't go into that um, at the moment. Uh, one of the things that we see is this conspiracy idea. What do we have as we see that on Nat Geo and, and Discovery Channel, we always have the idea portrayed to us as though this is something new. This is something which, hey, here's the great big news. Dan Brown reveals to us this massively new piece of uh, discovery that he built the whole of his Da Vinci Code on, this information that we found out that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene, and the idea was that he had uh, a child and that the child was the Holy Grail. It's not a cup that was used uh, at the Last Supper. The child was the Holy Grail. That piece of information is this hidden truth. Well, the reality is that pretty much all of those conspiracies are hundreds and hundreds, and in many cases, close to a thousand or so years old. There is nothing new yet that I have heard. One of the conspiracies that's raised is the idea that Jesus was stolen away. The piece that we're looking at this afternoon is in Matthew chapter 28 and 11 to 15. Here's the conspiracy. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews 
to this very day. From day one, there has been conspiracy relating to the Easter message. From day one, from the very moment where Jesus is raised from the dead, there has been alternate stories. There has been alternative explanations for something which one group of people are claiming is an incredible, supernatural, divine miracle. So, I love the fact, don't you, that the Bible doesn't hide away from that kind of issue. Matthew actually shares it with us. He says, do you know what? I'm not going to ignore a conspiracy. I'm going to tell you what what was going on from day one. Because what effectively he's saying to you and to me is, here's the alternatives. Here's one view. Here's another view. The view that I have portrayed is the view which eventually he died for, and the view which is alternatively portrayed is a view that Jesus' disciples came and stole the body. Let's have a look at the moment where this happens. Look at what it says. While the women were on their way. Well, we read about what was going on a little earlier. Jesus' disciples had spent, on the night before he died, an incredible moment in time with him. They shared a meal with him. They promised him faithfulness. They were committed to him. They shared a meal which has now formed the basis of what we share as communion. They are absolutely committed to Jesus. Within a matter of hours, they have dispersed. They have all gone in their separate ways. They are terrified because the one who they had put all of their trust, trust, all of their faith in, had been arrested. He was tried. He was found guilty of a hodgepodge of crimes with no real witnesses other than mob rule. He's handed over to the Roman authorities which have the right of capital punishment. The Roman authorities essentially give him opportunity to find a point of freedom. He declines that. He's nailed to a cross He's taken off the cross. In fact, what we see is he's followed by a small number of women who've been following him for many years uh, and a young disciple uh, at a distance, terrified, broken-hearted. He's nailed to the cross, he's taken down, and he's buried in a tomb. That's where we've got to. That effectively is on the Friday. Day passes. Everybody is rocked in Jerusalem by this event. And yet a small group of women want to do something which is, I guess, culturally appropriate. They want to anoint his body with oils. And so they go down first thing on the first day of the week. And they are terrified. Because what they find is a tomb which is broken open. One of the other gospel writers recognizes that they had a conversation on the way about how they were even going to get into the tomb. How are we going to do it? But they went 
to anoint the body of Jesus. The stone was rolled away, and they ran, terrified, from that tomb to tell the other disciples. It must have been almost at that moment, just a few moments before, because as they're running in one direction to tell their disciples, we read this, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went in the other direction whether it was literally the other direction, but you know what I'm saying. They went to two separate places. The women go to tell the disciples, and the other guards go to tell the chief priests. Because they're terrified. Because what's gone on for them is also significant. They are responsible for holding the body of a dead man. It's a simple task. It's not somebody who's going to abscond and yet they've lost the body. There is a crisis. Their lives are at stake. And so they go to the chief priests. The guards go, go into the city, tell the chief priests what's going on. And there is a conspiracy which is hatched. Tell him that the disciples have come. And when, when this message gets through to your ultimate boss who is absolutely going to go off his rocker. He's already known as a violent, kind of explosive character. He is going to go, he's going to go leap. Is that right? Is that, that's Yorkshire enough? He's going to go leap. And he's going he's to come, he's going to come down, he's going to take your life. And so we will back you up. We'll catch a story, and that's the agreement. There's the conspiracy. And from that moment on, Matthew says, that conspiracy circulated amongst the Jews, even to the point where he wrote it, years later. <laughs> you see, National Geographic and Discovery Channel, they haven't got a monopoly on conspiracy. But I want us just to pause for a minute and think uh, about this particular claim. Three things that I want to recognize. Firstly, there is a desire to conspire. Look at what happens. The most dramatic event has just taken place. A mind-blowing supernatural event has taken place and yet the desire of those soldiers in that incredible situation is self-preservation. You see what happens, their first port of call as, their, as soldiers is not to, to go back, is not to go back to the authorities, Roman authorities. It's to go to the Jewish leaders. It would seem as though there is a recognition that they are in trouble. And so there is a desire, right from that moment, to conspire together. Isn't it interesting as well that it gives us a little insight into the political power struggle and the political structure that was going on in this occupied Roman territory? That the Roman authorities had the ultimate power, and yet the Jewish authorities clearly had some sort of say. 
that when it really hit the fan, they were able to uh, protect these Roman soldiers. They had sufficient weight and sway that they could engage directly with the governors, with the governor. They could create a protective blanket over these soldiers. What I find interesting is that what Matthew is portraying to us is that what we see in terms of a togetherness of conspiracy regarding the death of Jesus, where he makes it really clear that the authorities, both Jewish and Roman, were conspiring together regarding his death. He makes it really clear here that there is an equal conspiracy between the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities regarding his resurrection as well. They both, before and after, work together to make sure that the death of Jesus happens and that his resurrection is hidden away. It's the first point we see. There is a desire to conspire. Secondly, I want to suggest this. It is a precarious claim. Jesus' engagement in that particular part of the world at that particular time was undoubtedly revolutionary. It was dramatic, it was incredible, it was powerful. But there were other revolutionaries at the time, around the time of Jesus. There were other Jewish revolutionaries. There were revolutionaries whose, whose mode of operation was not the same as Jesus' revolutionary power. How did Jesus engage? He engaged with the, with the weak, with the broken, with the powerless, the group of people who he worked with in engaging with that broken group, were equally a broken group. People of no power. People of no authority. None of his revolutionary activity in any way gave any source of or indication of any kind of strong-fisted, powerful engagement. And yet what this conspiracy demands that we believe is that a group of people who were essentially peasant fishermen, discredited tax collectors, and women who at the time in social status were secondary, that group of people, on the death of their leader, somehow mobilized and were able to defeat a group of Roman soldiers when their mode of operation up to this point never once engaged in any kind of military activity. That's the claim that this conspiracy demands that we believe. It is precarious. It's actually wanting us to believe that a group of people who Matthew portrays are actually terrified in a moment of some sort of incredible strength and turnaround are able to attack a Roman group of soldiers 
and liberate a body from a tomb. It's precarious as a claim. So thirdly, I want to look at the undoubted response. The very fact that we are here today, I would suggest, is because that conspiracy at that point in time was incredulous. It's a conspiracy which has been repeated for the past 2,000 years, and yet the evidence is that that small group of people have created the foundation of a movement which has now reached millions upon millions upon millions of people. That's what we see. A group of people who are fearful somehow are able to turn something round and end up founding the church. Or, people looking on, people hearing the claims, people seeing the issues in front of them, actually believe what was said. That Jesus was risen. That He rose from the dead. That the idea that this group of people could have stolen the body is, is more unbelievable That is more unbelievable than the claim that he rose from the dead. That is massively powerful, isn't it? The fact that within a few years, the message of Jesus is growing and growing and growing, tells us that at that moment in time, this conspiracy was not believable. Because if it was believable... If it was obvious at that moment in time, then the witness of those disciples would have been filed in hidden history. It would have been the forgotten. Well, you might say, well, that's all very interesting, but I guess what about us? What is true? That's an interesting question, isn't it, in the 21st century? What's true? You don't need to kind of disappear off into the uh, lofty heights of universities and the academy to engage in the idea that whatever's true for you is fine. It doesn't have to be a philosophical kind of heavy debate I guess that all of us have had a conversation where we've all heard something like, well, if that's what you believe, then that's fine. What's true? I want to think about that for a few minutes as we close. And the first one thing that I want to say is that at one level, we are faced in this little section with two alternative options. And you and I are faced with the decision, which one do we believe is true? Do we believe that he was risen again, or do we believe that his body was stolen by the disciples? Or we can swap that body stolen by the disciples 
for any multitude of alternative conspiracies. That is what we are faced with. We could have the body stolen by the disciples. We could have the idea that he wasn't actually, uh, didn't actually die on the cross uh, and the coolness of the tomb revived him and he then lived on. We could have all sorts of different options over here. You and I are confronted with one or the other. Which do we believe is true? And I would say, for us as a church and for me, I believe that the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection are true. I believe that he died. I believe that when he, when he was taken down off the cross, he was truly a dead man. His brain was dead. His heart had stopped beating. He was all of those things. He was carried into, to, into a tomb as a dead man. I believe that he then rose again. I believe that that resurrection was a true bodily resurrection. I don't think it was some sort of spiritual ideal or some sort of philosophical hope. I believe that when he rose from the dead, he, he went and he met with his disciples and he ate bre bread with them. He drank wine with them. He ate fish on a beach. He appeared to them. He turned to Thomas and he said, come and touch these wounds. I believe that the resurrection of Jesus was a literal, true resurrection. He rose again. That's what I believe to be true. I live, as do many others here, I live according to that truth. And therefore, you might say to me, it's true to you, therefore, that's fine. That's great. I live according to that truth. That is my truth. It's what I believe to be true. You might say, I really believe that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. I believe that the whole of the message of uh, the rest of the New Testament is based on this ideal. And it's just a great message of hope. And therefore, I would say, well, okay, that's in one sense, that's true for you. That's fine, that's true for you. You will live according to that truth in your minds. You will live according to that. That is your truth, this is mine. That's fine, we've got alternative truths. But there is the other thing that we see. All of our decisions are far, far more complex than simple that or that. And we know that from this story. See, there's two groups of people. One group of people... The women have seen the resurrected, or they've seen the empty tomb, seen the resurrected Jesus, one of them, according to one of the other Gospels. They've gone and told the disciples that's what they believe. But there is another group of people who act in exactly the same situation, completely differently. What they decide to be true is shaped by all sorts of other things. It's shaped by their position. It's shaped by the fear of what may, that might be the resulting alternative, which that Jesus had actually risen. It was shaped by personal security. It was shaped actually by financial gain. They were given a significant amount of money. 
to make this decision to say that he'd risen from the dead. His body had been stolen, rather. You see, our decisions are far, far more complex. And I just want to suggest that maybe we need to step back and say, is it possible that maybe our decisions, in some cases, to believe one of the conspiracies are shaped far more to do with the implications of believing the alternative. You see, it's not a simple that or that. It's not a simple decision which is of no meaning whatsoever. You know, I I can believe that the moon is made out of cheese. I can believe that for all my life. And it won't make a scrap of difference. Actually, it might make quite a difference. You might not want to be my friend anymore because you might think I'm completely nuts. Uh, But it really won't make one difference to my life, will it? Not really. But if I believe that Jesus is risen, you see, that makes massive differences to my life. It changes everything. Because if He has risen from the dead, He is the unique person in the whole of this world's history who is claimed to be the Son of God, suddenly, suddenly has absolute foundation. If He has risen, it means something. And it isn't just an unimportant claim. It's a demand which makes me stop and say, if He is who He is, then I can no longer discount everything that He said. I can't can't get away from it. Now, there's two ways that we can view that. There's one way where if we're viewing from the outside and saying, I'm I'm confronted with this, what am I going to do with it? I would say that that is absolutely essential that you confront. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he did, then it changes how you have to think about him. It changes how you have to approach everything that is recorded about what he said. The outcomes of that are another journey, but you have to confront what he said. Paul said to those who did believe it, if you do believe that, Paul reminds us of the significance of it. He said, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. He says, everything rides on this. Everything rides on this. Your faith in this Jesus is useless. You might as well just go away and have a great life. It's that dramatic. If he rose from the dead, it changes everything. You say, well, okay, we're moved on now, haven't we? So our our decisions on what we believe to be true, we don't approach neutrally. But then you can still have your truth and I can still have my truth. I want to think about the idea that we move from what's true 
to real truth. See, can I, I can have what's true for me. You can have what's true for you. But the arbitrator of those two alternative views is neither you nor me. The arbitrator of those two views, according to the Bible, is Jesus himself. That's what the resurrection claims. You know, we can, we can agree to disagree for all of this life. But the one who is going to finally become truth rather than us saying this is true or that's true, the one who is going to be seen to be truth is Jesus. Paul puts it like this to Timothy. When he's trying to make Timothy understand how significant his job in the church is, how important the message of, the, of Jesus is, how critical it is that we hold on to the truth of Jesus. He said this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. You see, his view is this, the one that finally will arbitrate between your truth and my truth is the one who will judge us both according to the Bible. That's how significant the resurrection of Jesus is. That's why Paul says to Timothy, you've got to get a hold of this. You've got to see how important it is. You've got to make sure that it's passed on from generation to generation because what's true will not be seen in an argument between two academics one who's claiming one thing and one who's claiming another thing. Or two popular writers, one who's claiming one thing or, and one who's claiming another. Or some sort of um, kind of uh, news of the world equivalent tabloid article. That isn't what's going to decide it. What's going to decide it is the return of Jesus as judge of all, both the living and the dead. That's the significance. Our declaration, I guess, as a church, is just in keeping with everything that's, that's happened for the past 2,000 years. It's in keeping with those few women who went and, and found the other disciples and they said, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. That's what we declare today, joyfully. We declare Jesus is risen but it's a, it's a declaration with importance and with significance which we share this afternoon.